0: jump in tonight to lesson 25. And I made a joke a moment ago that we've saved the best for last. And it's going to be a challenge these next three weeks. I was talking with Phil. He came in today to the office and we were talking. He said, well, do you feel good about tonight? And I said, well, the best I can. And uh, because what's in my heart is very difficult to teach. It's always easy to teach the Bible looking backward at the things we have historically, and to pull truth out of book of Genesis and Exodus and all of that. But when we look forward, which would be typical book of Revelation forward, when we look to the future, anytime a pastor or leader talks about the future, we have to come at it with a little speculation. We have to come at it that we can deduce the best we can deduce, we can reason with Scripture the best that we can reason with Scripture. But to be hard-nosed about it is, is very intimidating because why would we want to be hard-nosed about something when we're not there? My mother and I often joke about the future. We often laugh and say, I bet when we get there, all of us will be wrong. Like we think we know, but you know we know in part. So I will say the next three lessons as I land the plane of this series, they're going to be looking toward the future. And what it's going to look like in the kingdom when we get into the future. So the best I'll be able to do is to take scripture and try to build a scenario, so to speak, of what the future will look like based on scriptural teaching. And again, everybody has opinions on scripture. So what one may get out of it may not be what I get, but I'll present it to you that way. So tonight we start with stepping into the future. We've talked about the government of God as it's here on the earth, what it looks like. We ended about three weeks worth of lessons on the government within the church and how we're to rule and reign with him. But tonight we're going to step into a time that's going to be vastly different from what we know now and what it's going to look like. And I will do my best to teach it to you in such a way. Let's jump right in if we will. First Corinthians chapter six is where we begin. And it's an interesting phrase. Don't you realize, Paul says, that those who do wrong. And then this phrase is what I will be dealing with most of the night tonight. That those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God don't fool yourselves those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or thieves and we rarely talk about these people or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheap people and then this phrase again phil and i have had long conversations over this i've had long conversations with Various people that I trust trying to understand it. Because it says, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. I think if we're religious, we could easily say, well, I know why a thief and a drunkard and an abusive person. But when you lump in greedy people, well, we may be really lacking a lot of people in the kingdom. If we take this list of people, because if I go back to this list of people, it even says those who do wrong won't inherit the kingdom. Now, for a long time, I took this to mean eternal life that you won't get eternal life. You'll burn in hell the rest of your life, because if you're in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or you're homosexual, you homosexual, you'll burn in hell. And that's kind of how we mean by inherit the kingdom. But I want to say tonight that I believe, maybe not everybody believes this, but I believe that the kingdom of God is not about life eternal. And by that, I mean when we stop measuring time and we move into when there is no more time. And when we step into that, we'll look at that in the next few weeks. But when we step into that moment, we're stepping into not a a it's so hard because even the way we try to define the eternal is with time. You know, the song when we've been there 10,000 years, like the way we understand eternal is by just talking about a lot of time and it just goes on and on and on. But we have to understand that when we talk eternal, that we have stopped time as we know it. We've come to the end of time and nothing will ever be measured by time again. And the reason that will be is because everything prophetic has been fulfilled. And we're going to come to this point tonight as we end on what is going to happen that would end time. And then as soon as we end time, we step into what I call eternal life, and that is the realm of God. It is that we enter into His realm, His being. And we become one with Him, and we're no longer measuring time because... The reason we measure time is to follow the prophetic truth of God. The way we know truth is over time. It's what I've said before, and I will not belabor. It's not a teaching about time, but you can go back to the Genesis class. I think lesson two or three is about that. But it goes on to say you won't inherit the kingdom. Well, here's what it appears The thinking is it appears that the kingdom of God is not just about God's government right now. And that's what we've been working on the whole time, that God has been building a government on planet Earth. Through the Old Testament, He's had His people, He's had His rules, the things that He requires. And in the New Testament, Jesus has the church, and we have the, the way that we're to live by the Spirit. And so we do have that God's government is to work right now in the local church. We're, we've talked about the gifts and the elders and the deacons. And, but there's an interesting thing, and if you study, this is an interesting topic to study because there's a group of people... <laughs> That believe in the way we would title it is Kingdom Now. And what the teaching is, is that the kingdom of God is already here. This is it. I had a friend years ago that believed we were living in the kingdom now, right now. That Jesus, that the Jesus that's coming back has already come back because he lives in us. And so there is no second coming. There is no reigning of Jesus. Jesus reigns through us. And then the teaching is, and we will ultimately take over the world. So Christians will take over the world and the way Christ will rule the world will be through us. I have no problem with that except to say if that is true, we're losing. Uh, So... And we're losing that battle. So, But what I also have worked out is not just to be tried about it, but I've really looked at it scripturally. And I find one thing that um, pretty much ends that debate immediately. Even years ago when I asked my friend the question, and he was hard-nosed that this is it. We're living in the kingdom right now, and Jesus rules through us. And I asked him the one question, that I felt like would answer it, and his response was, I don't know. And so I chimed back in, well, you sure have taken a hard stance when you don't know. And so I would like to say that this thought is very apropos because I believe the kingdom is right now, but it's also coming. So we are to rule and reign right now, but there's one thing that's lacking that we don't rule over. And it doesn't matter how spiritual you get, you're not ruling over it. As much as you want to try to rule over it, it'll never work because you can't. You don't have the ability to rule over it. It's an authority that you, you cannot break yet. And I'll teach that to you tonight because now the future that we step into is going to be a future where the Son of God, Jesus, steps into the government of God and one final time... Destroys by his authority the one thing left to be destroyed. And once we do that, we enter into what we would call eternal life. Here's what the word inherit means it's the, Hebrew, the Greek word kleronomeo. I, I butchered that, but it's good. K L E R O N O M E O. And it means to receive an inheritance, so nothing profound about that. But an interesting thought that I've highlighted is it, it means that you're a partaker of a right and that you become heir to a right. So when it says that I am an heir of Jesus Christ, or it says that you will not or you will inherit the kingdom, what it literally is, is trying to intimate is that you will partake of a right that is being offered to you. It's nothing that you've earned, you partake of it because it's offered to you. You become an heir and to be an heir, it's going to be based on who you are. So perhaps we would say this, maybe the reasoning why the scripture could be so violently written, no drunkard, no greedy person, no adulterer, no homosexual, no murderer will inherit the kingdom maybe what it's trying to get us to see is that if you have all these labels of wrongful behavior, then maybe you're not a true child of God. That's the only thing we could speculate. And and if we really dug this out, I think we could back it up scripturally because what we could determine is Jesus says, if you love me, you obey. And I know mine. I know who are mine. I know them by their fruits. So that no matter what Mark would say about Jesus and what I know about Jesus, Jesus will intimate what he knows about me based on the fruit of my life. So we would be able to say there may be a lot of people that claim to obey and love Jesus, but it's Jesus who is, who is offering the right to the heir of what we're to partake in. So now I want to know, well, then what is it? What is being offered to me? That is coming that I'm to partake of. that is a future thing because he writes it as if it's something coming in the future. You're going to inherit this thing. He did not write like it's already here, but that it's coming. So there's this moment in our future that is waiting on all of us. And the, the I won't say the tragedy, but the the. I'm looking for a good word, the turmoil, that would be the word I picked. The turmoil of it is, is the thing that's coming is very much connected to how I'm living right now. And, and I know we don't like that because who would dare judge how I live? And I would even say, don't judge me, I don't judge you. But obviously the scripture will judge me in such that Paul could write, if you're not living right, you won't inherit a right So I I won't play around too much with that because it gets real sketchy on, well, who's going to make it and who's not, because we could fight that fight all day, other than let's just leave it here. How you live right now determines the inheritance of the future. And whatever that would look like, we could at least land on my life now determines the future that is to come. And a lot of times we as Christians don't live based on the right of heirship to come. We live based on the problems at hand. So the reason we serve Jesus is I have a problem and I want him to fix my problem. My life is broken and I want him to fix my broken life. Nothing wrong with that. He can do that. But the truth of the gospel is that the salvation of your soul is much more beyond present problems and much more toward a future airship that he's trying to bring you into being a partaker of. So let's just start running through a rather lengthy scriptures. So I have a, a lot less notes tonight and a lot more Bible verses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. So, obviously, again, he's going to be letting us know it, you shouldn't have to really scratch your head. And here are the, the desires that are clear sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility. Again, I, I have no problem with those. Like, they feel like they're dirty. But then I get down to the last line here and it says quarreling. I'm like, are you kidding me? Quarreling? Just get married. That, that's every, every married person is not going to make it. Jealousy? You know how many people are jealous today? Even godly people? Outburst of anger? Just let the dog chew your new shoes. So now, it's this is what I mean by it's very difficult to teach this because I can easily teach all these sexual problems, these lustful behaviors because they're so dirty, but then it moves me out of this dirtiness and it moves me into selfishness. What? That's almost everybody in the room at one time or another to live for ourself. Dissension, stirring up problems, gossip. Getting on Facebook and posting things to hurt other people. That's dissension. Causing strife. Envy. Dear God, how many times have I driven by a big house and go, God, I wish I had that house. Oh, I wish I had that car. Oh, I wish I had her hair. Oh, I wish I had their money. What? Like It's almost like they just randomly shook up a bunch of words and said, good luck. Drunkenness, I can get that. You shouldn't make it. Wild parties. And then just as if I forgot some, he just says, and other sins. So what it tells me in the room is not a one of us deserves to inherit the kingdom. Start there. Nobody in this room deserves to inherit the kingdom. He said, I'm going to tell you again, as I've told you before, that anybody that lives this sort of life, and here's the phrase, will not inherit the kingdom. So I I come into that going, well, I feel pretty hopeless because I probably fit about three of the words that were in the list. I've been jealous before. I've been envious before. And we could argue, do you mean one time, 10 times? Is it an ongoing habit? Well, this is what Ephesians will say. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 5, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, I'm good with those people, they're dirty, but then again, a greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and God. And then it doesn't talk about homosexuals, It, it pulls the greedy person and gives them another sentence. The greedy person is an idolater. When is the last time anybody's ever taught about that? It's easy to stand up and talk about homosexuals and LGBTQ and sexual sins and lust and perversion, but greedy people? So again, it it intimates we're in a world of hurt here. Maybe this is why it will be called an inheritance. And maybe it's why it's a right. And maybe if we really took time to study it long term, we would see the parable of the good uh, you know of the how it's written is the prodigal son but the reality is it's not the prodigal son it's the loving father because in this story of this prodigal son the younger son comes to his daddy and he says daddy i want my inheritance now the now the only issue with that in the culture of the time For a father to give the inheritance up to a child that asks for it, it would come in such a way that I hate you, I want nothing to do with you, and I want what's mine now. In other words, my right comes after you die, but I wish you were dead to me. I want your money now. And we know that to be true because as soon as he gets the money, he leaves. And he he lives as if he's dead to his father and he squanders everything. You know the story, he squanders it all, comes to his senses. Now, the moment he comes to his senses, we begin to understand what it means to have an inheritance. That the inheritance is not gonna be connected to the stuff. And I think a lot of times we think inheritance. Inheritance is all the stuff I get. I get the pianos and the cars and the checkbook and all the money. That's the inheritance. That's what he said. Give it all to me. And he squanders it. And then he comes to his senses in a pigsty. And he says, I'm going to go back home. And then makes a phrase. He says, even the hired servants live better than I'm living. And he goes back home. And the moment he goes back home, we probably get a sense of inheritance and what it genuinely means. That it was never tied to the stuff, but it was tied to who you were. Because when he comes home, the father says, do what? Put the robe on him, put the ring on him. He who was lost is now found. Oh man, that's powerful. That makes me tear up. That's a powerful thought. You've wasted everything I've ever given you. But the one thing you cannot destroy is your mind. You belong to me. And now it, it takes it a little further because what we have to say is, as a Christian, and what is my right? What is the thing that if I believe in Jesus that the devil cannot take from me? What is the thing that even on my worst day... If I, if I serve the Lord and even if I blow it, even if I'm greedy, even if I've been envious, even if I've been sexually immoral and all these things that, I've, that I know I can have a list of things against me and I'm out here squandered in the desert and I'm thinking, man, I, I'm not going to inherit anything. And all Jesus asks back of us is if you will simply just come home and let me remind you of who you are, not what you've done. But who you are, I will clothe you with an inheritance. Now, the inheritance is interesting in the story. I wish I would have taken the time, but I don't have the time to teach this parable. But in that story, the older brother gets ticked, remember? And he says, I can't believe you did this for him. You've killed the best calf. You've brought him home. The older brother's mad. And then I love what the father says to the older brother. He said, son... Everything I've had has always been yours. It was yours anytime you wanted it. And we learned something about the parable that that what is the airship of God to us is the thing that we do not deserve. But it's the thing that is ours at any given time based on who we are. So I would have to go back to adulterers, greedy people is not based on somebody that has a problem, but it's based on the nature of who they are, that they're not really part of the family of God. They may say they are, but they've never been born again. It doesn't mean that you can't be a Christian and have a sinful behavior and then you're just gonna one day you were greedy and he comes back and he's like, sorry, you were greedy today. You're not getting in. I don't think that 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 would give none of us hope. But when he says a greedy person, maybe he means that you don't know who you are in me because you've never been born again. You you don't know the nature of who I am. And so it makes me bid the question, then what is the right that's being offered to me? And to think this through, what could God offer me that no other entity on planet Earth could offer me? Now once we answer this, it, it will tell us the the power of salvation and the power of the kingdom of God. If I say to Umar, what is the one thing God can offer that no human being could ever offer me? Once I define that, I will forever understand what it means to be an heir of God. Second Timothy four one. Now here's where it starts getting interesting. Because we we push ourselves deeper into the future. To this moment where our airship is going to be rewarded. And Timothy says this in chapter 4, 2 Timothy 4, 1. I solemnly urge you. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. In the presence of God in Christ Jesus. And then this phrase. Who will someday. Now the moment he says that. It lends me to believe that there is a kingdom that's coming separate from what we're living right now. Because he intimates there's a someday coming, a someday where we will judge the living and the dead. And then this phrase, which I don't hear a lot of people discuss often, when he will come and set up his kingdom. So we've been reading, you'll inherit the kingdom. And to me, if the kingdom was already here, then this would be a futile sentence. We could just take it out. Get rid, of, get rid of verse 1. Because if it's now, there needs to be no someday. If it's now, then we've all been judged already. If it's now, then all the dead people have been judged already. And if it's now, then there's no reason for him to come and set up his kingdom. It would already be here. So when I asked my friend this, I said, the one question I have about is Jesus coming back or not and and is this it because he believed this was it this in other words this is eternal life right here we're living right now God help him but he genuinely believed it he genuinely believed this was the millennial kingdom and Christ was ruling through us and the reason there was so much sin is we didn't rule so when I questioned him I said I'm good with that if that's what you want but I just want to know has the dead been judged yet and he said huh I said well If I go back over to where my grandfather's buried, he's still there. So that means that if the dead is one day, someday the dead is going to be judged, then I should be able to walk back to my grandfather's grave and my grandfather would not be there. And the grave would be open. And I would have judged both the living and the dead. And I said to him, have you been judged yet? And he said, well, well, no, not everybody's judged yet. I said, okay, then I rest my case. And then that's when he said, well, I don't know. So I I stuck with mine. I liked me better. I felt like it was a little better. But it goes on in 2 Timothy 4, a few verses down in verse 8. And this is interesting. And now a prize awaits me. Oh, come on. Oh, this is awesome. Don't think that what you're doing down here is futile. Everything you do right now is not futile. I know sometimes we may think it is like, what is all this about? Poor, this poor life I'm living. It's been hard. Yes. And yes. And maybe so. But, and now verse eight of second Timothy four, a prize awaits me. Thank the Lord that he doesn't leave us to try to figure out what the prize is. He tells us it's a crown of righteousness. Now, Anybody want to tell me why the prize would be a crown of righteousness because you're greedy envious jealous all those words, right? So the way I can overcome all of those words that you will never inherit is I will simply tell you there is a prize awaiting you and the prize is a crown of righteousness So the moment you stand in front of Jesus and you've placed your faith in front of him and you stand there in all of the dirt, maybe, and all of the failures of life, but you've believed in him. Some have had a good life, some maybe not, but you put your faith in him. You've lived the best you could live and you stand in front of him. He comes up and rather than pointing fingers at you, calling you a sorry, little, no good, greedy loser, he places as an heir, a crown of righteousness upon your head. And it says, which the Lord, I love this, the righteous judge will give me on the day of his return. And so now I simply would ask anybody here, have you been given a crown of righteousness? And Your answer is going to be no. You may have a spiritual one. You may spiritualize it. But he tells us that seemingly it's going to be an actual crown. That's my assumption. It's not figurative. It's a literal Like place on him the robe and the ring. My belief, it's a literal crown that will be placed upon me that will signify I'm righteous because of him. And then therefore, my righteousness in him gives me my right to the inheritance. Right? I may have squandered stuff on planet Earth, but I stand here believing in him as his child and he lets me in. And then it says, and this prize, I love this, is not just for me. Come on. Yeah. This was written 2,000 years ago. Yeah. But it's for all who le- eagerly, and then we push ourselves to the future again, look forward to his appearing. Hallelujah. So there's gonna come a day in this kingdom that we've been talking about where the literal king comes to earth to set up his kingdom so that his government will run on the earth with him sitting on a throne. Now the question would be, why? Why not just nuke the devil, get rid of the dude, and let's live happily ever after? Why do we have to go through all this thousands of years with Jesus here and lock the devil up, bring the devil back? Like, let's just get rid of the old fella. Well, to understand why, I will do my best to teach it to you tonight of what this is going to be when he comes to set up his kingdom. And why is he coming to set up his kingdom on earth? Romans 5 verse 17. For the sin of one man, Adam, caused death to rule. Now we're getting somewhere. And death ruled over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and His gift of righteousness. It sounds like that crown again, right? Like, I'm giving you a gift here. It it is an inheritance for all who receive it. And then this phrase will live in triumph over two things, sin and death. And now I, I pose to you the reason He must come back is not for sin, Sin has been conquered at the cross. Yes or no? Sin has been paid for. Sin has been obliterated on the body of Jesus Christ. But there's one thing remaining of why he has to come back and set up his kingdom. Because the one thing of coming back is to deal with triumph over death. It matters not how spiritual anybody in this room gets Death will meet you one day. And by death, I don't mean that you go to hell and rot. And by death, I don't mean you go to heaven and live there and don't die. I mean by death is that your physical body is going to rot. And that is a tragedy. It was never intended by God to rot. And no matter how spiritual we get, we're rotting. You can fast, you can pray, you can speak in tongues. And as you get older, this old body rots. Why? Because death has not been defeated yet. It still works in every one of us in this room. And by death, I don't mean you breathe your last and we bury you. I mean that your body is corruptible. So when we talk death, I don't want to just think of funeral. I want to think proof that your body is corruptible, that no matter what you do, your joints, your blood, your heart, your organs are slowly deteriorating. Now you would think if the life of Christ was so powerful to conquer sin, my body wouldn't deteriorate. But the reality is he did conquer sin and we have a right to live down here healthy. But even when you live healthy, your body still deteriorates. Like that's why we clap when you hit a hundred and get on a a jelly jar like, wow, on a jelly jar. That's incredible because we're shocked Because we all know, even the most Christian of us know, that to get to the end of life and have some semblance of your health and your mind and your organs and you're not just decrepit is is we would say, that's a good life. I say that of my dad often. He's 86. He's had a good life. Right? I don't know when his moment that he will depart and go be with the Lord. But on planet Earth, he doesn't look 30 anymore. And I've been here 12 years, and in the 12 years I've been here, he looks a little older, still hits the ball straight down the fairway, his hair's a little grayer, he's got a little mole on his head now, like we just get older. Now, that's not a, something we should fear, but it's something we must acknowledge that that's proof that there's still something that has to happen. That has not happened yet. That is going to be the most powerful thing to make a statement of this world I've talked about in the spirit world. So what's going to happen is the moment death is dealt with, it will be a statement to the spirit world that Christ is everything he said he was. See right now. Christ is who he said he was, and you have some people believe it, and some people don't. It's speculative, based on faith. But the moment he deals with death, it won't be speculative anymore, because people will live forever. So what we have to do is we have to figure out, and I love what it says, I'll read it again. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death. And then it tells us how. Through this one man, Jesus Christ... So as we talk about the kingdom, there's coming a moment where it won't be about us, but it will be about something he is going to do. Again, we did nothing to conquer sin, did we? We didn't hang on the cross, but we were included in it. And we will do nothing to conquer death. But if we believe in him, we will be included in the result. So by belief, I'm both included in the victory over sin And I will also be included in the victory over death. So that's what we're working toward. So anytime somebody says, well, this is it, we just need to pull this word death in. As long as death is still here, we're working toward someday. So where we've got to go is, well, what what is this kingdom being set up for? Here's the answer that I gave you to the question We are heirs. What are we heirs of? We are heirs of triumph over two things, over sin and over death. Right now, we're triumphing over sin. We've put our faith in Jesus. And hopefully by the help of the Holy Spirit, sinful behavior has no rule over me. It has no power over me anymore. I can triumph by the death of Jesus Christ. But I will not triumph over death until Jesus deals with that. And when he does, we can say, and we've triumphed over death as well. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm we're God's children. There's that heirship. And since we're his children, we are his heirs. So I'll kind of tag what I've been saying. Heir is about being a child, not about all the good you do or the bad you do. We all have some good and bad days, but it's the nature of who we are. In fact, together with Christ, we're heirs of God's glory. Now, when it says that, it becomes interesting. It literally tells me what I'm an heir to. I'm an heir to God's glory. Without... Oh gosh, we could spend weeks on it, but just in thought. All right. So this is a thought when it says we're heirs of God's glory. And then if we've been a Christian long enough, we'll say Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this issue of glory will take us all the way back to there must be something about God's glory that he's trying to give to me. If we go back to the Garden of Eden And it says that Adam and Eve were naked and felt no shame. Chapter two, verse 25, that they were naked and felt no shame. What we assume is, is that the glory of God covered them. But it was when they sinned that they realized, oh my gosh, we're naked. And I'm thinking you were naked the whole time. How could you just now realize this? Because the moment they sinned, they lost the glory of God. This is why Christ will be called his glory. This is why Christ is called the hope of glory. So now what we realize when we're heir of God's glory, if we wanted to say this in a little clearer English, we would say it this way. You're an heir to a clothing that is going to clothe you. But it's not going to be a clothing like this. It's going to be a clothing that is something eternal. Because what Adam lost was the clothing of an incorruptible body. So that the moment he eats, he loses the clothing of an incorruptible body, which was the glory. So if you think glory, you have to think an incorruptible clothing over the human. So he eats and the clothing goes... Then Jesus dies for us and he's called the hope of glory. And the moment I say, Jesus, you're my Lord, the cloak goes and comes back over me. And I'm suddenly clothed with his glory. Now, this becomes interesting. He says, but if we are to share with his glory, we must also share with his suffering. So I would like to know what that is. We plead with you, 1 Thessalonians 2. Encouraged you and urged you, to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. Again, interesting. He called you to share in His kingdom, and what else? Glory. And his glory. So now it's not, we can't say that sharing his kingdom is, he's just going to meet all my needs and he's going to give me a car and he's going to bless me and I'm going to live with him. Now it's like my kingdom and my glory. In other words, I'm going to give you every right to everything I have, but you will share also in my glory, meaning I'm going to give you something that no one else can give you. I'm going to clothe you with a glory. Now, what will that glory do? It's interesting. Here's the question. What is it that Jesus desires to share with me? What is this glory? What is this glory that he's wanting to share? As when I said to Umar a moment ago, what is the one thing that God can give me that no human can? And the answer to that question was glory. Nobody can give you the Glory. And by glory, I mean clothing, the thing that brings weight to your life, the thing that measures your life, that he puts this glory upon you. And why would he do that? He wants you to share in his kingdom. You cannot share in his kingdom if you don't have glory. All right. So that's my thinking. You cannot share in the kingdom. If you don't have glory, here's what I mean by that. Adam and Eve are in the kingdom. They're in the middle of the garden. Everything that's God's is his. He's just loving it up. Don't do that. Don't eat that tree. He goes, I forget you. Eats the tree. As soon as he eats it, what happens? The glory leaves him. He goes, gosh, I'm naked. He covers himself with fig leaves. God comes down and says, what in the Sam hill did you do? You're trying to hide from me. God kills an animal, which is blood sacrifice, and clothes him with animal skin. But the animal skin did not solve the problem. The animal skin simply kept God from killing him. But it wasn't glory. So because he lost glory and is now naked with animal, God's like, bro, you got to get out of my garden. You cannot stay in the garden without the glory. Out the door you go. So what we must say is there will be a lot of people that will stand before God wanting to get in. But if you are not clothed in glory, you won't get in. It doesn't matter. Here's my thinking. Nothing changed about the physicality of Adam. He was naked before he ate, he was naked after he ate. So the thing that changed was the glory that was allowing him to participate with God. So when someone says, well, I do all these right things, I should get in, or I've done these bad things, I shouldn't, it doesn't matter, you may be good, you may be bad, whatever, but the thing that gets you in is you've been clothed with glory. And that is Christ. Christ in you is the hope of glory that when you see him, he will go, you're come on in. So that's how I have to think this through to understand this kingdom that's coming. All right. Now, here's the kingdom coming. I'm not going to go too deep with this because we're going to take two more weeks to parse this out. But this will be the introduction. Revelation 20 verse 1 and I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand He sees the dragon that old serpent who's the devil Satan so he gives you four titles of the devil just so we won't speculate. He's a dragon. He's the serpent He's the devil. He's Satan now this is what this angel does It binds him in chains for a thousand years. And that just makes my head hurt. Because I'm like, why are you playing with him? Just nuke the old buzzard and get rid of him. Why leave him chained up? He's just going to cause a problem. And he is. He's going to come back a thousand years later and cause a whirlwind of a problem. So why would God have the devil chained up for 1,000 years. Let's keep reading. Revelation 24, and I saw thrones. And here comes this, we know we're in the kingdom because here comes all these words. I saw thrones, people sitting on them. They were given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those that had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had worshiped not the beast or his statue or accepted the mark on his forehead or their hands, they all came to life again and then this, and they reigned with Christ how long? Like what, what, what in God's name is this about? Like why do I have to come alive and reign with you a thousand years? What statement are you making? Because in the thousand years, it's like the devil's locked up and I'm ruling and reigning for a thousand years. Folks, you've been alive less than 80 years and that's a long time. Can you imagine right now if I looked at my father and I said to my dad, dad, you have 918 years left to live here. 918 more years, dad, to live here. He couldn't make it. His body would probably quit at about 100, 105 and we would clap. So what statement is being made? Why lock Lucifer up? What statement do you want to make when he comes back? It goes to say this, they all came back to life again and they reigned with him for a thousand years. This is my take. Right now, here we are. We're living life at the cross of Jesus Christ. There's coming a later of what I've been trying to say. That later is a lightning bolt. Something is going to happen that we're going to determine this thousand years that is coming in our future There's a thousand year period of time waiting on you And in that thousand years, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to be alive And I look at this body and think how in the Lord's name am I going to make it a thousand years And why a thousand can God not accomplish it in a week? To me, if you can make earth in seven days, why am I going to have to hang out for a thousand years? What are you trying to build now? The universe? More? So what I have to ask myself, he made the world in six days, rested on the seventh, but whatever happening here is going to take him a thousand years to prove a point? Yes. In this thousand years, God is going to prove a point. A very profound point, and not just a point concerning you, but all of the spirit beings to Satan himself who rules that world. God is going to make the most profound statement ever. Here's the first thing we look at. Prior to the thousand years, I called it the millennial kingdom, which is where we are right now, God ruled through the first Adam, that's all us humans, and his children. And Jesus came, and when Jesus came was born of Mary, and now we're his kids, the church. Sin has been conquered, but the one thing we can say about the cross of Jesus, death is still an enemy. And there's no way around that. Jesus' death on the cross conquered sin, but there's still an enemy that's alive. And the Bible's going to phrase it, it's the last enemy to be destroyed. So here I've conquered sin, but now I need a thousand years. Now here's what's interesting. Think this through how profound this is. It took me as Jesus, it took me about 30 years to grow up, but it took me three years of ministry And it took me three days to conquer sin. I was crucified three days later. So here's the here's the thought. Show you how powerful death is. Sin was conquered in a three day trial. Death is going to be conquered over a thousand years. Let us never think that death is not a powerful enemy. It is so powerful that the Bible says it's the very last enemy that will ever be destroyed. And no matter how many vitamins we take, you will never destroy death. It's working in all of us. It's that powerful. We talk a lot about sin. Jesus forgives you of your sins. Yes, that's true. But the one thing we talk very little about is the power of death and what you're believing in him offers you over this thing. And what we will find out as we study it is death is not an event. Death is a spirit that works in contrary to Jesus Christ. It's it's a literal being. Death is a being that will have to be thrown into the lake of fire. So death is not, I breathe my last, oh, he died. Death is a, I don't know, but it must be a pretty powerful being. That is going to be the very last enemy Jesus ever destroys. Somehow connected to Satan. I don't know how, but it's an enemy. And even the strangest thing is thrown in separate from Lucifer, Satan. So it, it is a being that exists outside of this thing called the devil that is working to mock Every time a person dies, I'm sure death is mocking God. Look at these people as they rot away in the ground. And you thought you defeated me. You didn't defeat me. They rot in the ground. I hold their bodies. I oversee them. They turn to dust. They're nothing more than what you created. They go right back to the very dirt you created because I rule over you. So every time a human body goes back to dirt, it's the spirit of death able to mock God that we're no longer in his image. So there's this battle that's ensuing. Well, it gets more interesting. And the Lord God in Genesis 2.15, here's why it's a thousand years. And the Lord God took the man and put the man in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And then this phrase, for in the day you eat it, you what? You surely die. Now, if we look at that, we we cannot assume that the day he eats it, he physically dies. Because the day he said he does not physically die he sleeps with Eve they have Cain and Abel they have Seth and if we go into Genesis 5 Adam lives to be 930 years old so either God's not telling the truth because the moment he ate it all he did was realize he's naked but he lived another 900 plus years what a cool life he says but when you do you surely die now the moment God made this prophetic statement I believe death entered into the equation and started working on Adam and Eve. Because if I can get, watch now, if I can get him to eat this fruit, what happens to this immortal flesh of a man? He dies. Now, the moment God made this statement, Lucifer knows God cannot lie, therefore, God will be bound to himself. The day you eat, you die. Now I've got you all. All I need to get you to do is eat. The moment you eat, I can hold God to the fan and say, hey, he ate, he needs to die. And God says, okay, you're right. I can't lie. He's going to die. Well, he needs to die right now. Well, no, I told him in the day he eats, he dies. And then what we get is intimated by Peter out of some revelation, I guess. I don't know. Peter 3.8 but beloved, don't forget one thing that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So now, what we know is that the moment Adam ate, the clock is ticking. No human being from the biting of the fruit will ever pass over one thousand years. If they do, God is a liar. Because all humans have been judged by death. And death is you will not live past a thousand years. So when Methuselah dies at 969, you would think if you've lived 969, couldn't you just make another 31? Like what happened? Your body's just like, I'm tired. Like at 968, are you like, I think I'm going to get out of here. No, he couldn't go past a thousand because God would be a liar. Most interesting thing is about the time uh, Methuselah dies at 969, Jesus comes on the scene at age 30 and pulls us into this beautiful equation that Jesus is going to finish these last years that Methuselah could have lived. Because nobody will ever pass a thousand. Now here's the grace The grace is God lets you die at about a hundred. Because how cruel to leave us here for 900 years in sinful bodies. We've destroyed America in less than 200. Could you imagine if nobody was dying until age 900? We have 7.6 billion on planet earth and we're dying at age 70 and 80. What if everybody on the planet lived to be nearly a thousand? Do you realize how much perversion, sin, death? So the fact that after the flood, we start dying off about 120, and then we start dying off about 100, in some weird way, that is grace that allows us to get out of this corruptible body and be in his presence waiting on something to happen, which is the glory. So here's what we've got. The reason we need a thousand year millennial kingdom is because he's going to prove something. In this thousand years, Jesus is going to conquer death. The reason it's a thousand years long, the reason the devil is locked up a thousand years The reason he's let go after a thousand years is because Jesus is making a statement to the spirit world that the first human that passes 1000 years, the curse of death is broken. And it will be a statement to the spirit world that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ broke the curse over humans that they had to die before a thousand years. And so as soon as Jesus lets Lucifer, he's been there a thousand years, and lets him out. And Lucifer's probably thinking, there's going to be nobody here because they're all going to die. And he comes and we've just multiplied like crazy. How did you humans... Get to live past a thousand. This is unfair. And in that moment, we get some interesting thoughts because what begins to happen as the scripture says, the first man, Adam, was a living person, but the last Adam is a life giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, but now a spiritual body is coming just as we are now like the earthly man. And here we are earthly man. We're fleshly, but someday, come on. We're going to be heavenly man. And the heavenly man that I'm going to be is that I'm going to be given an incorruptible body. And if Christ has not been raised, 1 Corinthians 15, your faith is useless. You're still guilty of sins. And in that case, all you've died believing in Christ are lost. But if our hope in Christ is only for this life, there's this Adam body, this life. If I'm only believing him so I don't get a head cold, I'm to be pitied more than anybody else in the world. Because you see, he says in verse 21 of Corinthians 15, just as death came in the world through a man, Adam, the resurrection from the dead becomes through another man, Jesus. Just as everyone dies, because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given a new life. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first harvest and all, here's that word again, that inheritance. All who belong to him... Will be raised when he comes back. And then after that, the end will come. After what? After that, the end will come when he'll turn the kingdom over to God the Father. He's now destroyed. Come on. Every ruler's been destroyed, every authority's been destroyed, every power has been destroyed. For Christ must reign. That's that thousand years until he humbles all of his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So when that human being crosses the thousand year mark. And we've been on planet Earth for 1,000 years. The moment we cross the 1,000-year mark, every spirit being knows that the curse on Adam is broken because humans have just crossed the day with God. And they did it because of Christ the king. And he has now destroyed all authorities. we get into this next week, you're going to see that he takes death and he throws him. And in that moment, the moment death is destroyed, we enter into the eternal world. There's no more time. Here's the thinking. During the millennial kingdom, that's a thousand year reign. God rules through Jesus, the last Adam and his children. Sin is conquered but also death is conquered. The reason we have to have the thousand years is to prove to the spirit world that Jesus has conquered death. And the only way to prove that is humans will have to live past a thousand years old. See, right now, we say, well, he's already conquered death. Why? Because we're up there with him, right? As soon as you die, you go there. And then we preach your funeral and go, now she's not really dead. She's, she's with God. Yes, but no. Yes, your soul is with God but no your flesh is corruptibly dead so you are dead and then we say well this is just a shell it's not the real mark and I'm like that's a lie that is the real mark no different than that is the real mark so this thinking that your shell is not the real you if it's not the real you there's no reason to raise it back up it is the real you it's the dead corruptible you that is sitting in a grave waiting on the airship to happen. Your soul, I believe, is with the Lord. Your consciousness is with the Lord. But your, your corpse rots in the ground and the enemy sits over it and goes, I won, I won, I won. But someday there will come the clouds that will part and that rotted corpse will, boom, and it will come to life. And that rotted corpse will be connected to my soul. And I will be looking at my body going, what in God's name is this? And he said, it's the incorruptible you. Now come rule and reign with me because you will never taste death again. That's powerful. So, don't just think that your little flesh is just going to rot away. That thing is held in the ground, and Lucifer uses it to mock God. But when the king comes, he's done mocking because every bit of flesh will be given a brand new incorruptible body. In the twinkling of an eye, this corruption will put on incorruption, and this mortality will put on immortality. And that which he is, I shall be glorified as the same body that he has will be the same body I have glory to God. Well, that hadn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. So right now death works and death tries to get you discouraged. So here's my thought. And we're going to talk about this millennial kingdom. Like what's this going to look like? This millennial kingdom, the purpose of it, when Christ comes to set up his kingdom, this millennial kingdom, this thousand year reign is so that humans can live 1,000 years proving that Christ has now defeated the last enemy, which is death. We, we're probably 10% of the way there yet, which I think is funny, is that we're given a 1,000 and we live to be about 100. That's a tithe. Your body's nothing more than a tithe. And God's going to come get to his tithe one day. And, oh, man, it's going to come back good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Glory be to God. I can't wait for that day. Well, here's my thinking. My thinking is this millennial kingdom, this kingdom that is to come, this setting up of Jesus, this Jesus ruling with humans is going to be what we define as resurrection life. And in that period of time, we rule and reign with him. And this ruling and reigning, this judging, it will be based off how you live right now. If you're faithful with little, you'll rule over much. If you're faithful in that which is another, I'll give you that which is mine. So right now, Jesus is marking your life to determine how you will rule and reign in this kingdom to come. For he will not share it with drunkards, and greedy people and adulterers and jealous people. He will not let somebody with jealousy sit on a throne and reign with him. He will not let sexual perversion sit on a throne to reign with him. So when we say you will not inherit the kingdom, what, what I think it could potentially mean is I don't receive the incorruptible body whereby I can live a thousand years to judge and reign with him. Perhaps I may die early. I won't get a corruptible body. That'll come later. So I believe in this millennial kingdom. and It is a statement of those of God's children who have lived righteously and trust his righteousness, who he says, come in for this mortal. I don't know what we believe, uh, you know, the rapture or the second coming. We get an immortal body quickly, too. Uh, the, what the Bible teaches, is in the blink of an eye. It's just, oh, wow, what just happened? Glory to God. And the beauty of that is there's coming a day where you'll get to live a thousand years. Not some blissful floating around with angel wings, you know, a mist, this ethereal ghost of a mist. No, you will, you will literally, I believe, look somehow like you look now. You, it'll be a glorified you, but you, I don't think we'll be going, who are you? I think I'll go, dude, Sam, you look incredible. You'll be like, Mark, you don't have a belly anymore. I'm like, I know it. (laughs) So I don't know. I mean, it is evident that once their eyes were opened, they realized it was Jesus. He obviously had an appearance of a real human because they thought he was a gardener. But he could also walk through walls and appear and disappear. That's pretty incredible, which is kind of how I think we're going to judge. I think we'll be appearing and disappearing in various places around the earth, ruling with him. But we'll be given that type of body, the type of body that can eat a fish, the type of body that can talk and reason. But yet it's not bound by natural elements, but yet at the same time can still eat because we're going to be eating of the tree of life. And Jesus ate fish with them, and it's just strange. So it's going to be the way I think it was intended to be in the Garden of Eden. We will be human bodies with incorruptible, immortal bodies, but still know each other, still have relationships with each other, still be eating, still be joyful, still be, but have zero death working at all. Let me bless you. Father.